G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. You may have been following the developments around the decision to scrap a deal with the French to build diesel-powered submarines and build our own fleet of nuclear-powered submarines with the backing of the UK and the US. Well, there are growing concerns time is short before a new conflict that Australia would inevitably be drawn into. A new pact called the AUKUS Treaty has been formed with our longtime Western allies as China displays growing belligerence in the Indo-Pacific and continues to threaten Australia with more trade sanctions. All this as China deepens communist control and continues to crack down on religious minorities, including Christianity. Now, Christianity has continued to flourish in China, where estimates show a dramatic rise, especially in the house church movement, numbering now as many as 100 million Christian believers. So how do Christians make sense of developments that are going on in the world today? What do you think God may be doing amidst these developments? We're unpacking thoughts today on the changing power balance in the Asia-Pacific, what it means for more pressure and persecution of Christians in China, and how we might understand the changing power balance throughout the whole world. Our special guest through this coming hour, Peter Westmore, who's a former president of the National Civic Council and is publisher of News Weekly. Now, the National Civic Council, that was founded by B.A. Bob Santa Maria, an anti-communist political activist from the 1940s, It's got a long history of a conservative voice on social issues and no doubt we'll hear some more of those those thoughts and uh, that voice today on 2020. Peter Westmore, a special welcome along to 2020. Hello Peter, are you with us? Yes, I am. Peter, welcome along. Pleased to be here, Neil. Peter, let's talk perhaps a big picture at the start of our conversation, the changing power balance in the Asia-Pacific, and these sorts of announcements coming from our government. Uh, What are your thoughts on what's been happening? Well, the first thing, Neil, just go back a bit. Um, Two important points are that we understand the nature of the Chinese regime, because that's central to to this whole discussion. Um, Since the Communist Party seized power in China in 1949, which is over 70 years ago, China has been a one-party dictatorship and run by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, For the first probably 30 years of that 70, roughly 70-year period, the Chinese Communist Party was mainly concerned with um, strengthening its power internally uh, and uh, assisting... Um, revolutionary movements around the world but from our point of view in 
the Southeast Asian area and in fact our involvement in various conflicts, the Malayan emergency, um, even going back probably to the Korean War in the 1950s, Malayan emergency, the Vietnam War, in a sense were all connected with the fact that the Chinese Communist Party was seeking to expand its power by funding revolutionary movements in um, Southeast Asia. But over the last 40 years, it's quite radically changed direction and it sought to exercise power by increasing its own economic strength. And that process has been actually spectacularly successful. China is now the second largest economic power in the world and it is one which is capable of projecting its economic power right throughout the world. From Australia's point of view, it is particularly concerning that over the last 10 years, particularly since the present president of China, uh, Xi Jinping, has been in power, China has attempted to project its military power, firstly by claiming as its own the whole of the South China Sea, and secondly by um, attempting to put political pressure through its increasing military strength on a number of neighbouring countries, and that particularly includes, um, includes Taiwan, which is regularly threatened by China with, with invasion. But the Chinese regime is a one-party dictatorship, a communist dictatorship, which not only is concerned with winning, with projecting power externally and winning control over the, our region, but also with, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, asserting its total power over the Chinese people. And that includes, obviously, the 100 million Christians whom you mentioned in China, plus large numbers of others who are very unhappy with the regime's attempt to um, dominate the way that they think and prevent freedom of religious belief, whether it extends to Buddhists or Christians or Muslims or anyone else. Um, this is a, a regime which is seeking power and it's projecting its power into our part of the world. And we have to see the latest announcement um, of the AUKUS Treaty as a response to that. Let's and talk about are, that, yeah. Peter, because you've got this uh, rising aggression, the asserting of power, and and this is the power that's coming from a, uh, a one-dictatorship state. Uh, so when we talk about AUKUS, this new... Uh, this new pact between Australia, the UK, the US, and uh, designed to counter that aggression. Does it, it make a big statement like that? Well, potentially it does. I think we're very, in very much early days here because the announcement has been made, but clearly there's been a lot of private work done behind the scenes to bring Australia, the US, which we've been in a long time alliance with going right back to the Second World War uh, and the UK which um, is an attempt by what I'd call the Western democracies to 
work together to uh, limit the further growth of Chinese power in our region. And of course, we, we also want to work closely with other countries within the Southeast Asian area, countries like Indonesia, um, Malaysia, um, and so on. Um, but the significance of the UK and the US is that they both are countries which have um, nuclear-powered navies. They have uh, um, nuclear submarines. And Australia has reached a point with regard to its former partner, with regard to the development of our navy, that is uh, France, where the, the project which we had previously signed up to with France was simply not working out. And in fact, um, th when the project, that project was announced in 2016, that's five years ago, the cost of it was then put at about $50 billion. Well, even since then, and no submarines have been delivered and won't be delivered for quite a few years, the cost of that project is now blown out to $90 billion. Peter, and, yep. So Peter, we're looking, yep. we have to look for an alternative. And okay. what we've done is we've gone for the major Western powers, who are our traditional allies, but who also have the advantage of giving us access to something that France would not give us access to, and that is their nuclear technology to build nuclear-powered submarines. Okay. Now, China reported as saying that, and important no doubt here, to, to say that the, the submarines will be nuclear-powered, not nuclear-armed, but the Chinese yes. reported as saying the move could, in fact, start an arms race in our region. And, uh, and perhaps even uh, thoughts here that Indonesia may be threatened by the idea that Australia has this new alignment uh, with the US and the UK and uh, an arms race a possibility. Have you had any thoughts around that possibility? I think we should let the Indonesian government speak for itself. And I don't think China can claim to speak for Indonesia or for anyone else. It's not surprising that the Chinese government should be hostile to this because it is directed, in a sense, at trying to ensure that um, China's expansionism in our part of the world is meets firm resistance. And we want to work with countries like Indonesia, which like Malaysia and the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, as well as Taiwan, all of them are threatened by China's push into our part of the world. So, uh, Neil, I don't see this as having any implications, adverse implications for Indonesia. In fact, I would be amazed if they don't welcome it, particularly because um, Indonesia itself is facing the... Th the uh, attempts by China to assert control over Indonesian territorial waters. So this is actually going to help our uh, friends in Southeast Asia by strengthening our capacity to push back against the growth of Chinese military power, including naval power, in the South China Sea and even into the Straits of Malacca, which is a vital trading route between Europe and the Middle East, including the oil fields of the Middle East, 
and all the countries of uh, North Asia, including Japan, Taiwan, um, and and um, and South Korea, who are traditional friends and allies of ours. And I'm sure that with the Defence Minister having just visited South Korea, for example, he would have briefed them on this initiative. Uh, and of course, South Korea, like Japan, are also long-time allies of the United States. And uh, I would think all of them would see this as actually strengthening Australia's engagement, our defensive engagement in the region, uh, certainly not in any way threatening um, countries which have been allied with us. And China's reaction is utterly predictable. Um, you know, they've been attacking Australia now for diplomatically for a number of years. I don't see their responses being anything more than more of the same. Now, Peter, the potential flashpoint, of course, is China and Taiwan. Uh, yes. Predictions that China will uh, will increase its uh, capacity there to take back Taiwan within six years. Any thoughts yes. around the, the likelihood, uh, the speculation that that could happen? Any thoughts here? Um, it's, it's certainly possible. China has asserted from the the Chinese Communist Party has asserted its right to control and to invade Taiwan since 1949. And what has stopped that from happening is that the United States has a major naval presence in the uh, this part of the world. It has fleets based in Hawaii and it also has a naval bases in Okinawa, which is part of Japan, and regularly sails its naval vessels through the Taiwan Straits, which is that narrow stretch of water between Taiwan and China itself. Uh, and it's, it does that for the same reason that Australia sails its naval vessels into the large um, uh, area of waters which China is now claiming in the South China Sea. It's to assert freedom of navigation. Now, if for any reason um, China believed that the United States would not go to the defence of Taiwan, I've got no reason to think that China would do anything other than carry through on its promise to forcibly reunite Taiwan with China. Taiwan has been separate from China since 1949. It was part of China before, before that, for at least for a period before that. Um, but Taiwan has been totally independent of China since 1949. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Our special guest is Peter Westmore. He's a former national president of the NCC, the National Civic Council, publisher of News Weekly. We're talking through some issues today, the changing balance of power in the Asia-Pacific. There is a focus on China. There are threats to Australia and there are issues that could develop if China decides to 
take back Taiwan and that could be the spark of war which Australia could inevitably be drawn into. Peter, let me ask you here, and I want to put a scenario to you, because in our introduction and a dimension that not too many others will be talking about today, the fact of the rise of Christianity in China to the level of where there are up to a 100 million Christian believers, if there was war with China, if there was a fall of communism in China, where do you think Christians might be set for changing differences and the, the way that things might develop beyond that. Uh, it's a, it's a, perhaps a, a big scenario, but not impossible. What are your thoughts? Well, firstly, Neil, my view, and based on uh, what we know from history, is that no regime, no tyrannical regime ever lasts forever. Now, I grew up in a time when the Soviet Union was... Um, you know, based in Moscow, was attempting to become the dominant power in the world. And we know that after 72 years, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, utterly unexpectedly. And I can say no one in Australia, um, in, the, in Washington, in London or elsewhere anticipated the collapse of the Soviet Union. And all of us, in different ways, are the beneficiaries of the collapse of that, um, of that totalitarian dictatorship. Um, and we now have, in fact, a large number of countries in Central and Eastern Europe which are free as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So evil regimes do eventually collapse. And if I could use a sort of a, a, a Marxist analogy, I would say that they collapse under the weight of their own contradictions. And the Soviet Union collapsed ultimately because, firstly, there were courageous people in the West who stood up to the Soviet Union and who basically created a situation in which the Soviet Union was no longer able to even to aspire to its aspirations of world domination. Um, I think similarly, in circumstances that we can't predict, the Chinese communist regime will come to an end. And a possible scenario is this one, and that is that the Chinese Communist Party overreaches itself, and that is it attempts to assert its power beyond what it is truly capable of doing and that there is a sort of a reaction. I don't think China will, is likely to, the Chinese Communist Party is likely to fall as a result of outside invasion. It will be far more likely, as with the Soviet Union, to collapse as a result of internal pressures. And there are internal pressures in China. We know that. We know that there are pro widespread protests against the Chinese Communist Party. There is a growing middle class in China, and I think the question has to be asked, for how long will that middle class tolerate this one-party dictatorship telling them what to think and what to do and giving them no power over the direction of their own country? 
And I speak to people who live in Australia, who grew up in China, and they tell me that they think that the Chinese Communist Party will uh, at some point collapse. And I think the role of Christians in a, uh, and, and other believers, other people with religious faith in a post-communist China is going to be very important. And Christianity, no doubt, being seen as a threat to the Chinese Communist Party. Otherwise, there would be no crackdown on Christian faith. And the idea of sinocizing Christianity, uh, trying to turn Christianity uh, so much more, I mean, even with the idea of, uh, you know, republishing Bibles that are are uh, favourable to the communist ideology. I mean, this is yes. sounds like an impossibility, but this is the sort yes. of thing that, that the they Communist do. Party is trying to do. So yes. Christianity is a threat to the communist yes. regime. Yep. It, it's a threat, Neil, because they can't control it. Because Christians are, are followers of Jesus Christ. They are not followers of Xi Jinping or Mao Zedong or any of the other rulers of a communist uh, dictatorship. And it's that the fact that they assert that they are followers, faithful followers of Jesus Christ, that's what makes their position incompatible with that of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, So we just have to be patient, I think, with regard to that. Peter, do you think that the Christians in China... Uh, if they are able to see this news, uh, seeing Australia aligning with the UK and the US, a new treaty, a new pact, uh, do you think they would see the alignment of these democracies, these Western democracies that have Judeo-Christian foundations as almost a sign of, uh, of unity of Christianity outside of China? I think they would see it that way, um, and I think that they would also know that this um, this this new agreement, this new treaty, is not directed at people who've got peaceful intentions. It is entirely defensive, a bit like our ANZUS alliance. Um, um, it is defensive. It is designed to protect our values and our societies and those of our neighbours in our region. In no way could it possibly be seen as a threat to, to China other than to Chinese expansionism as put forward by the Chinese Communist Party. And interestingly, while probably typical Aussies aren't seeing this sort of uh, pact, this sort of treaty together with the US and the UK as anything more than some secular alliance, there is a sense here in which these countries, the UK and the US and Australia, have these common Judeo-Christian foundations. Do you think that's actually significant? Well, it's significant in the sense that Our society and that of the US and the UK are all founded on Judeo-Christian principles. You know, some people say we live in a post-Christian world, but whether that's true or not, the foundations of our society are deeply embedded with Judeo-Christian values. And, you know, our legal system is firmly based upon 
Christian principles. Um, the way that we even treat each other is based upon Christian principles. I would even say, even if people don't recognise it, it still is. Uh, and what we're concerned about is protecting um, our values and our culture, um, both within Australia and, in fact, sort of right throughout the world. So what we're trying to do is to assert our own values and our own principles. And Australia has a long tradition of doing this and also of doing it in a way which is, which is uh, respectful of countries with different traditions, even different religious traditions, say countries like Indonesia, Malaysia and so on. Peter Westmore is our guest, a former president of the National Civic Council and publisher of News Weekly. In fact, Peter's, uh, Peter's history goes back to even as a candidate in 1975 in a federal election for, with the original Democratic Labor Party. Taking you back to some memories here, Peter, uh, yeah. you took over uh, leading the National Civic Council from Bob Santa Maria back in 1998, but you were a candidate for the original Democratic Labor Party. And yes. uh, standing against sort of communist developments in Australia and here we are 2021 talking about communist developments around the world so you mm -hmm. haven't changed your spots at all you've got a firm foundation in where you talk about these things. Yes I got it from as a student activist at Sydney University back in the 1960s Neil that's where it started from. Fabulous So stuff. yes. <laughs> now Peter come back to our conversation and we're talking about China we're talking about this new treaty. There are some vulnerabilities for us here in Australia because there is a cost for Australians standing up to Chinese communists. Uh, the idea of, uh, you know, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, who sought accountability for the appearance of the coronavirus and then these mm -hmm. uh, responsive trade sanctions against Australia. There is a cost involved and we are somewhat yes. vulnerable because of our small population. We're, we're very fortunate to have a Prime Minister who, despite the threats and pressure which have been brought to bear on him by China, has continued to stand up. And I would also say we are very fortunate in our present Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, to have someone who understands very well the great challenge which China presents, not just to Australia, but in fact to all of the free countries of the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, and I would think those two um, gentlemen are largely responsible for pushing this new treaty from an Australian perspective. And I think, Neil, if I could make one other point, and that is that even though Australia is a small country compared with China, we've got about 24 million people, China has 1.3 billion people, nonetheless, um, Australia is important in this part of the world. Um, we are um, a country which is also, you know, some people have said we punch above our weight. We have always been prepared when things get hard to play our role in trying to secure the peace and prosperity of this part of the world and to act according to our principles, which are, as I've said before, are 
deeply informed by our Christian values. Uh, and I think many other countries, even much bigger countries like the United States and the UK, understand that Australia is an ally which you can rely upon. If we give our word, we keep our word. We're even prepared to stand up when there are threats made against us, as have been made by China in recent years, and not just threats, but actual reprisals against Australian exports to China, a range of our exports to China, our coal, our wine, um, even our wool exports to China have been um, attacked by the Chinese Communist Party in an attempt to force us to change our foreign policy in a way that's favourable to them. And we are very fortunate to have a government which has stood up to that pressure and now with this latest announcement has indicated to China again that we are continuing to stand up for what we believe in. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation today. A question, a comment, a critique. 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Geoffrey in Portland in Victoria. Hi, Geoffrey. Welcome along. G'day. Geoffrey, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, look, I'm, I've got to say, I think you're misleading Christians. You know, the... We all, look, the book of Revelation tells us that all of this is going to happen. All of it. Now, you should be telling the people Jesus is coming, not worried about what the war is. The war is, it's all going to come, it's all going to happen, everything's going to happen, but you should be telling them that Jesus is the only way into heaven. Jeffrey, I think we do take a lot of time to express that Jesus is the only way. We also take a lot of time to talk about those sorts of uh, teachings that we'd glean from the Bible, uh, out of the book of Daniel or out of the book of Revelation. Those things are all a part of it. But as Christian believers, and I'm sure you'll agree when I say this, we are called to be salt and light. And so understanding the changes that are happening in our world and recognising that we already have a Christian foundation to our nation in Australia and those values have not been lost and how might those values actually be an influence on the values of the world? Again, salt and light as individuals, salt and light as a nation. So, Geoffrey, take your uh, your comment there and, and I wonder, if you, any, anything to add to that, Peter? No, I think that's that what you've said is quite right. I, I see that we, um, as... Christians and as believers, we have a responsibility to our own society and to the world. Um, you know, it's the Christians traditionally have been the light of the world, and I think it is our responsibility to to be the light of the world. Um, in spite of the fact, as Jeffrey says, that you know, ultimately. Um, you know, these events will work out often in ways that we can't quite anticipate. But we live in the world and we have to try to make it a better place while we're here. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Just to stay with a thought or two here, Peter, and I'll get your impression, because what we have is a contrast. You've got... Uh, Chinese Communist Party that prides itself in its atheism, uh, 
So when you have opposition to that or some level of counter position, uh, even a contrast to that, uh, we're talking about even this new alliance, I'm talking about Australia, US and UK, uh, we've discussed the Judeo-Christian roots, even the atheistic communists see us as a threat because of these foundations. So there is a Christian versus atheist dimension in all of this debate, isn't there? I see it that way, yes. Um, I think we also have to stand alongside and support our Christian brothers who are being persecuted in China. And there's a, we can only do a limited amount, but I do know that standing alongside them is actually quite important. And they need our support. They need us to stand up for them. And I'm so pleased to have come on this program and t- today because people on in the secular media will view this, um, the... Um, AUKUS treaty in purely secular terms but it does have a Christian dimension to it uh, and one which will only I think be spoken about on your program Neil and it deserves to be spoken about because as you said there are a hundred million Christians in China who um, themselves have undergone a long period of persecution and yet through that they still remain faithful and they want to bring about a better society in China and we want to bring about a better society in China. But it won't be done through the Chinese Communist Party. Um, I think Christians are the salt of the earth but they are also arguably um, an important part of the future of China. So you've got the Chinese Communist Party's war on religious belief. Uh, They're trying to stamp it out, basically, uh, sinicizing Christianity, uh, imposing the atheism of the Communist Party on the Christians and trying to lock out uh, anything anything that's Christian influence coming from the outside. So you've got the closure of churches. You've got bans on the sale of Bibles even yes. online. You've got removal of crosses. You've got pastors yes. being arrested. You've got priests yes. and worshippers who are under yes. a dreadful attack. And there is a certain sense here in which uh, even as you try and change the Bible, it really brings the Bible into a new focus and says what's in this book is really, really valuable and people will be pointed to it. So the pressure that comes on actually draws attention to the value of what's contained in that book, Peter. Yes, indeed. It certainly does. And even, it's interesting, Neil, I've actually spoken to some Chinese people who grew up in China and were Christians, and they came across Christianity because um, with the growth in prosperity in China, it's possible for many of them to travel now. Um, Others have come across um, the Word of God in the Bible, and they've thought to themselves, well, look, I'm, I'm really interested in knowing what it is that makes these people in the West, what makes them tick. And that's led them to reading the Bible. And through that, and their own private reading of the Bible, many of them have actually come to know and to love and to follow Jesus Christ. And when we uh, and, and, of course, for doing that, they are persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party. And what we have to do is to defend them and to support them 
and to say that uh, the Chinese Communist Party, if it really truly wants to be respected around the world, it has to give to its own people the freedoms of freedom of belief and freedom of speech and even the freedom to vote in their own government, which is something the Chinese Communist Party has not tolerated once over the last 70 years. There has not been one election, one free election in China for over 70 years. And that is extraordinary in a country which wants to be respected um, and highly regarded throughout the world. But the problem is the Chinese Communist Party. It is not willing to, uh, to uh, have its monopoly on power in China challenged. And I think, in the end, that's actually a great weakness. And when we talk about the possibilities of the Chinese Communist Party disintegrating, and whether that happens out of uh, some level of conflict or whether it happens, as you say, because of a movement rising within where people don't want to be under the dictate of the atheist regime, mm-hmm. you've got this rise of the, of, of the possibility of Christians then having an opportunity to bring the gospel in a more determined and much more significant way than ever before if there were some more freedoms to do that. Is that the way you'd look at why you would see Christians having an influence at a time when the Communist Party disintegrates? Yes, I think that um, we can't envisage the circumstances in which that will happen, but there are tensions within China as the Chinese Communist Party refuses to give the people of China, who are increasingly well-educated, have access to information that the Chinese Communist Party does not want them to have access to. Um, They are increasingly exposed to what I'd call sort of outside influences, and important among those are Christian influences. And I think the existence, the survival of Christianity in China is in part due to the fact that um, evangelism has is not, the age of evangelism has not died. We are in fact living through it. And Christians are evangelizing within China. Very large numbers of Christians um, have come to know and to believe in Jesus as a result of the work of evangelism in China, even though the government attempts to suppress it and punish those who are involved in um, evangelization. But eventually, this system will come to its end, as every evil regime comes to an end. Uh, And it's interesting, Neil, This it is now 72 years since the Chinese Communist Party seized power in China. It was 1949 that that happened. The Soviet Union, the communist system in the Soviet Union lasted exactly 72 years. Now, we shouldn't... There's no magic figure figure about that. But it's interesting. It just shows that regimes have a natural life. Um, and certainly ones which, um, which are anti-democratic and which suppress their own people do have a life. And Chinese people whom I've spoken to say 
that they believe, certainly within their lifetime, that this dreadful regime will come to an end. Uh, and I would even think the prosperity in China, which the Chinese Communist Party has encouraged, may even ultimately help to bring about the end of that of that system. We are taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Graham is in Burnie in Tasmania. Hello, Graham. Welcome back. Good morning, gentlemen. Look, uh, someone mentioned uh, Daniel, I think. Daniel 11 talks about the kings of the south, about the king of the north, and it goes on to say that this uh, chap sets his palatial palace up in Jerusalem, and he hears tidings from out of the north and from out of the east. And Revelations, uh, I think it's chapter 9 and uh, Revelation 16, talks about the Euphrates being dried up to make way for the kings of the east. And uh, we've seen the Arab peoples now coming together, making a treaty with Israel. And, of course, we see... Uh, Troubles in Southeast Asia are pushing North Korea, uh, throwing its bombs out there and missiles out there, and it's frightening people. And uh, the thing is that Scripture indicates, tells you that these people will come to Armageddon in the later days. We have a picture of the end times that comes to us in the Bible. Whether we are there or not, uh, there are some lessons that we would learn from that. Of course it is uh, to keep your focus on Jesus Christ, uh, even to keep your focus on what he is doing uh, through the people of Israel, which uh, we'll often talk about on this program. And yes, uh, those sorts of things we do keep an eye on. Peter, I'm not sure whether you're across a lot of uh, end times type teaching and what the Bible uh, teaches about those things, but... The lessons we learn from those are that we're getting our hearts and minds and lives right with God uh, so that when he does those things, uh, that we won't be taken by surprise and that we'll be found to be faithful. Uh, any yes. thoughts here for Graham? Uh, I think what you've said is exactly right. We, we uh, have to, we, we live in the world, but we are not of the world. And we have to ensure that whatever we do, contributes to the growth of the kingdom of God. Good stuff. Graham, thank you so much for your call. Uh, we'll put a line under any calls there now because we're only running, we're running out of time here. Um, the shape of China at the end of communism, Christians, a hundred million of them, uh, no doubt not holding any positions of power now. But if there is a disintegration, Christians, do you think, will rise to the surface and will take opportunities uh, to have influence on the reshaping of China? Perhaps as we uh, you know, draw our conversation to a close, this is one of those things that really presents itself as a possibility when you start to see uh, things that are at break point. Uh, uh, Neil, I would say I think that the model for what might happen after the end of communism in China is what happened at the end of communism in the Soviet Union. And we now see the emergence in Central and Eastern Europe, strong Christian-based leaders, and even in Russia itself. Um, this, you know, and I went to Russia about 10 years ago. 
Since the fall of communism, I spoke to a priest of the Russian Orthodox Church. He said 20,000 churches have been built in Russia. And there is no doubt that Russia post-communism is returning to its Christian roots. Now, there are some problems with the, the way that that's happening. And in fact, uh, even though communism ended in Russia, a lot of communists in Russia, um, including their president, um, sort of simply sort of turned up at work the next day and just carried on as before. So it hasn't been a complete transition. But Christians in Eastern Europe and in Russia play now a, a very important role in those societies. And I envisage that at the end of the communist era in China, Christians will also emerge and be able to play a very positive role in the reconstruction of China. And I, I think that's something which I may not see in my lifetime, but I certainly believe um, that Christians have a crucial role to play, and we can only look forward to that. And in the meantime, uh, we stand in some level of solidarity with the Christians who are in China going through the hardships that they're suffering under persecution as there is a crackdown on Christianity. And so uh, there are scriptures we could allude to uh, around yes. our solidarity with Christian believers who yes. are in China. Uh, Peter, we have run out of time and uh, no doubt the encouragement for listeners to be prayerful about what's going on in the world, about how that affects even the way we uh, conduct ourselves in our own communities. These things are all very important, uh, what we do in our local community and the things we might pray for about what's going on in the world. Those things are significant. Peter Westmore is uh, former National President of the National Civic Council. He's publisher of News Weekly. Let me just give a, a quick note here. News Weekly. Uh, people can subscribe to News Weekly, uh, a fortnightly publication uh, at the National Civic Council website, ncc.org.au. Uh, you're publishing News Weekly. What would people expect if they're accessing some of those articles, Peter? Uh, well, we put up um, articles from our current issue on our website. Um, some of them are available um, immediately. Um, in fact, we try to make... Uh, articles from the current issue available immediately but not all of them um, but um, we do have an archive on there of all of the articles which have appeared over time and a very good search engine which allows people to look up a whole range of subjects whether it's on culture the family politics international affairs um, it's a, just a very good resource we even find quite a lot of um, of um, high school students are using it as a resource for their for their um, for the um, essays and other things which they're using. So anyhow, it's available there, and we like to do that as a service to all of all of our readers and all of those who are interested in these issues. It's called News Weekly. You can access that a subscription at ncc.org.au. Peter Westmore, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020. It's a privilege, Neil. Thank you. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.